Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. And I'm Eleanor Goldfield. I recently sat down with journalist Ben Norton to discuss how Biden's immigration policy is out-trumping Trump and how we have to make the connection between U.S. foreign policy and the subsequent migration of refugees out of Latin America. Later on, Eugene Perrier joins the show to highlight the use and misuse of Black History Month, the ongoing colonization of Africa, and how that ties into systemic racism at home and more. All coming up next in the Project Censored show. We're really excited to be joined by Benjamin Norton, who's an independent journalist based in Latin America and editor of the news outlet Multipolarista. Thanks so much for joining us, Ben. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to dive in to Biden and immigration. Biden promised to, quote, end prolonged detention and end for-profit detention centers in pursuit of, quote, a fair and humane immigration system. I find that really difficult to say without laughing and crying simultaneously. (laughs) And back in January of last year, Detention Watch Network reported right as Biden was taking office that people in ICE detention was actually at a 20-year low. And now they're at over 22,000, which is 7,000 more than under Trump. And despite promises to advance policies that promote racial equity and do more to stop the spread of COVID, his administration actually requested more money for ICE enough to actually detain 30,000 in ICE camps. And at the same time, deportations are rising. United We Dream estimated last year that Biden deported over 300,000 people in his first 100 days, largely using a Trump-era policy called Title 42, a 75-year-old public health law that effectively closes the U.S. border to nearly all asylum seekers. And Ben, you reported back in January of this year that among these ongoing deportations, the deportation of children increased 30% in 2021, once again, out-trumping Trump. And I was curious, is he doing this also under the guise of public health, or is there any logic that he's putting forward to even try to explain this? Well, the logic is stay in Mexico. That's the slogan of the U.S. government, stay in Mexico. And we're specifically talking about deportations of migrant children from Central America. People probably remember that Kamala Harris gave this infamous speech in which she said, do not come, do not come. And she was talking to migrants from Central America. And even using the term migrant, I don't, I don't like to use that term a lot because we conflate sometimes migrants, which implies voluntary migration with refugees. And a lot of people, perhaps even a majority of the people coming from Central America meet the international legal definition of refugee because they're fleeing violence, they're fleeing threats, they're fleeing because their livelihoods have been destroyed. And the U.S., of course, bears a direct responsibility for this, especially in Central America, where I am right now. I'm in Nicaragua, which is the country that is the most stable in Central America. Central America as a region is one of the poorest in the entire world. Nicaragua is probably the most stable country in all of the region, and it also happens to be the country that is the most targeted by the U.S. for destabilization because it has a socialist government. It has a leftist government led by the Sandinistas, the Sandinista Front. So when we look at deportations, deportations, at least of children that the Biden administration has been carrying out, are largely unaccompanied 
children from Central America. And we have these statistics from the Mexican government. And something that I have to say that is really annoying and really disturbing is that there's very little coverage of this in the English language media, but it's actually very frequently covered in the Spanish language media. It's not hard to find this stuff at all. All of the mainstream newspapers, especially the Mexican newspapers, El Financiero, La Jornada, there's so many newspapers that cover this regularly because, of course, deportations are a very controversial issue that affects so many Latino communities, especially Mexican-American communities. And just Mexicans, not even Mexican-Americans, people in Mexico who are affected by U.S. immigration policy. And if you look through the Spanish language media, you can easily find, for instance, which is what I reported in English, that the Mexican government, according to the Secretariat for Home Affairs, so this is a Mexican government institution, they found that the U.S. government deportations of migrant children increased by 30% in 2021. And in the first year of the Biden-Harris administration, there were nearly 20,000 minors deported to Mexico. The official number is 19,793. And of those nearly 20,000 children who were deported to Mexico by the U.S. government, 78% of them were not accompanied by adults, over 15,000 of them. And the majority, a very slight majority, slightly over 50%, were from Guatemala, around 30% were from Honduras, and around 16% were from El Salvador. So these are the three countries in the northern part of Central America called the Northern Triangle. This is a region that has been devastated by U.S. interventionist policies, including a U.S.-backed coup in Honduras in 2009, including a U.S.-backed civil war that brutalized Guatemala, in which the U.S.-backed military junta, this far-right regime led by a Christian fundamentalist racist fanatic who considered indigenous people to be satanic, this regime with funding and the support of the Reagan administration carried out genocide against the indigenous people of Guatemala. And then in El Salvador, it's a very similar story. The U.S. has a history of supporting a brutal decades-long civil war against socialists, revolutionary socialists, and the U.S.-backed regime, the right-wing regime, committed horrible atrocities. And then there's also the reality of the U.S.-created gangs that were actually not born in El Salvador, like the Maras and MS-13, you know, Trump used this term using like this racist rhetoric, claiming that in every Latino neighborhood in the U.S. that there's always like these MS-13 gangsters just lurking in the corner. Meanwhile, what's not ever mentioned is that MS-13 was made in the U.S. I mean, I'm not saying that the U.S. government intentionally created it, but it emerged out of poverty and exploitation and suffering and racism that people suffered in these slums in the U.S., and then what happened is that the U.S. government deported all of the gangs. That was its solution to dealing with this gang problem, is deporting them to this country, El Salvador, which has been destabilized by U.S. policy, where the state is very weak and where if you have drug money, you can easily bribe police. So the reality is that the U.S. bears a lot of responsibility for destabilizing these countries. And this is bipartisan policy. Of course, when Trump was president, it's good that there was so much attention to this issue. I'm glad. But the reality is that Biden has continued so many of these policies, including Title 42 that you mentioned, which he used to, to deport Haitian refugees that were fleeing after we saw the U.S. government linked assassination of the Haitian president. And meanwhile, 
the Biden administration is using the same policy that Trump was using to deport refugees. It is depressing to see that there's so little attention to it now. It really does seem that the blue MAGA hat won. Now we can all go home. And I want to circle back to U.S. policy and how that really drives this migration, or as you pointed out, they should be called asylum seekers because they're refugees. But I want to first talk about, because you mentioned that 78% of the children were not accompanied by adults. And then on top of this, you're basically dumping these children in a place that is obviously not where they came from. It really screams of that U.S. ignorance that, oh, it's all the same thing, right? It's all just Mexico down there. What happens to these kids? You're dumping them in the middle of nowhere in Mexico. What happens? That's a great question. You know, you said that the U.S. thinks it's all just Mexico to the south. Well, as Biden recently said, everything south of the U.S. is, quote, America's front yard, is what he said. It was another one of these faux pas that Biden does, like when he talks about corn pop and all of this. And I think what he was trying to say is that I'm not a racist like Trump. I don't consider them all my backyard. I consider them my front yard. But then people in Latin America are like, that's not any better because we're not your yard. It doesn't matter which side of your house it is. We're not your yard. <laughs> that shows the mentality. And to be a little fair, it doesn't justify it in any way. To be fair, most of these refugees did actually go through Mexico into the U.S. So the policy is stay in Mexico. That's the literal name. It's Quédate a México. And it's also interesting to note, by the way, the difference in the U.S. government propaganda and messaging in Spanish and English. Because the U.S. government, it has these campaigns in Spanish targeting people in Central America and targeting also refugees and, and immigrants who are in Mexico. And the slogan of the U.S. government is, Quédate en México, stay in Mexico. That's the slogan. And then the U.S. government actually basically bribes Mexico. It pays Mexico money to basically prevent refugees and immigrants from going into the U.S. And that's a bipartisan policy that has continued under Biden. So that's basically what the U.S. bipartisan policy is saying to Mexico. You deal with this problem. We know we created it, but you deal with it. And they don't care, of course, as you mentioned, that people coming from Central America, they're very different culturally from people in Mexico. And in fact, they don't even speak the same dialect of Spanish. Mexican Spanish is very unique. And also in Central America, they even use like something called vos, voseo, which they don't use in Mexico, which is like you conjugate verbs differently. So, I mean, culturally, these countries are different. And these children going through, to be fair, they're not all like eight-year-olds, but they're minors. They're people who are under 18. They're legally children. And they don't have places to go. If you're a teenager fleeing violence or poverty in Honduras or Guatemala or Salvador, you're just looking for something. You don't even necessarily know what you're looking for. You just want to find a place that's better than where you are now, where you have slightly more security. You're not even necessarily going to be guaranteed to have a lot of security because as people probably know, a lot of these immigrants and refugees are trafficked. They're victims of human trafficking. And especially if you're in Northern Mexico, which is one of the more dangerous parts of Mexico, it's not even guaranteed to be safe but maybe it's going to be a little safer than the situation you're in now. So there is nothing for them when they're deported to Mexico. There is nothing for them. All there is is this policy that the U.S. gives a little money to Mexico for to say, stay in Mexico. But there is also people from Mexico who go to the United States in search of opportunities because NAFTA 
which was passed in 1994, devastated local economies in Mexico and led to a massive increase of migration to the north. And then, of course, there's all of the drug cartels. I also don't want to feel the stereotype that Mexico is this like crazy hellscape. Mexico is a huge country and not all of Mexico is run by cartels. Like that's a ridiculous stereotype. But there are Mexicans fleeing as well. Although if you look at the majority of immigrants and refugees going into the U.S. in the past decade, they're largely from Central America, not from Mexico anymore. The Mexican wave of migration was largely in the 90s and the early 2000s because of NAFTA, neoliberal policies destroying local economies and big ag corporations. What they would do is they would do these policies where Mexican farmers would not be able to compete with them because if you're growing corn and tomatoes and squash, then what these big ag corporations from the U.S. do is they come in, they flood the market with cheap tomatoes and corn and squash that's below the market value, and they're actually losing money. And they also have subsidies from the U.S. government. They're doing it long enough that they can force all of the local farmers out of business, and then they can increase the prices, which is exactly what Uber has done to taxis in New York City and Chicago and other big cities. Anyway, the point is that there's different waves of migration. And right now the migration is largely from Central America and the U.S. has no policy to deal with that. The U.S. policy is stay in Mexico and we don't care what you do in Mexico. The other U.S. policy is to try to bribe some corporations to invest money, to create horrible jobs, to exploit Central American workers. That is the so-called plan Biden for Central America that Kamala Harris has been overseeing and getting visa Walmart and these other corporations to claim that they're going to invest some money to create jobs in Central America. I'd like to remind you, you're tuned in to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. the difference between migrant and refugee, I think that oftentimes that gets confused in media because there doesn't seem to be a policy difference. Can you talk about whether there is, there should be, but is there a definable policy difference uh, either in this administration or in, in one's previous with regards to treating asylum seekers and refugees different than migrants? Well, yeah, we, we should be clear that there is a legal distinction and this is not a matter of just U.S. law. This is a matter of international law. Now, unfortunately, Washington just ignores international law and just does whatever it wants. But under international law, refugees have the right to apply for asylum or refuge in a country. So the U.S. is violating international law. Many of these people would easily meet the legal definition of being a refugee or an asylum seeker. But the U.S. ignores international law. And then the U.S. has this policy which is basically forcing people who don't speak English through these asylum courts, where it basically says that they voluntarily renounce their right to refugee status or asylum status. So what the U.S. does is it does these mass court cases. And it's, of course, illegal to film in court. But there are some brave immigrants rights activists, refugee rights activists who have filmed some of these mass trials. And this is, again, bipartisan. It really became popular under Obama. And I remember in the Obama administration, 
I remember going to rallies organized by immigrants' rights groups where they were calling him deporter in chief. And of course, Trump very much tried to continue that. But the irony is that because Trump was so overtly racist about it, there was much more resistance to it, which actually made him less able to do it. Now, of course, it's not for lack of trying. It's actually an example of how when people organize, they can have an influence. And ironically, because of the activism, there were fewer deportations under Trump than under Obama. But that's not because Trump didn't try. It's because there was more resistance. But anyway, the point is that since the Obama era, and actually a lot of this goes back even to the Patriot Act and to the war on terror, which is when this legislation domestically was pushed through that allowed the U.S. to criminalize immigrants and refugees. And even though it was ostensibly to fight so-called terrorism, that was used to justify cracking down on refugees fleeing because of a lack of job opportunities and neoliberal trade policies destroying their livelihoods in Mexico and violence in Central America. So we see how the, the war on terror was used to be able to, to also criminalize immigrants and refugees. But anyway, the point is that you have these ridiculous mass hearings where it's not you and the judge, it's the judge and like a hundred immigrants and refugees, including a lot of children. And the vast majority of these people don't speak English. And the vast majority of these people don't have lawyers. So they're representing themselves in an English-speaking court. And this is like Orwellian Kafka-esque. This is like the book, The Trial by Kafka. Like this is, if you read that book, it's actually, those are fairer trials than what happens in the U.S. here, where there's these, these Latinos who don't speak English. They are blackmailed to renounce their right to apply for asylum or refugee status in order to get out of these hellish detention centers. That's the deal. You're going to be kept in this prison, this detention center, which is basically a kind of internment camp. And it's also a for-profit internment camp run by private companies. And if you want to go back to a slightly less hellish life where you're not held in this camp, then you have to voluntarily renounce your right to refugee status in these hearings where you don't even understand what the judge is saying to you. And like I said, there are some people who have bravely filmed some of these mass hearings because there are activists who sometimes go into these hearings and they'll protest. But it's a policy that has continued. Kafka had nothing on the U.S. judiciary <laughs> system. I think Orwell and Kafka would be scribbling madly right now just to try and keep up. You've been reporting through your site, Multipolarista, about Honduras and Argentina and Bolivia. You recently reported on Honduras, the new shift in leadership there. Talk about that and about how you see the U.S. responding. It makes me think of like the war on terror, which you also brought up. We claim that we don't like terrorists, and yet we continue to create them through the policy that is basically pushing the largest terrorist organization, the U.S. military, into these places. <laughs> you mentioned the coup in Honduras and this ongoing violence, whether that be economic warfare or actual boots on the ground in these places, and yet we claim to not want refugees coming into the nation. Central America is, is a key part of this. And interestingly, in the past decade or two, Central America has become a major focus of geopolitical conflict, not only over immigration, because I mentioned that in the past decade, immigration patterns have shifted. And whereas in the 90s and the early 2000s, Mexicans represented the majority 
of immigration to the United States. Now it's Central Americans with Guatemalans being the plurality and also Hondurans and El Salvadorians. And it's not a coincidence that this region, Central America, has been so destabilized in these past several decades. But in Honduras, from 2009 until 2022, Honduras had these brutal right-wing corrupt narco regimes. There was a so-called president named Juan Orlando Hernandez, who's known by his initials J-O-H, which you pronounce in Spanish, Ho. He was so-called president for two terms. He stole two elections. He was a narco dictator. And his brother is in prison, ironically, in the United States because he was such a major drug dealer. He trafficked nearly 200,000 kilograms, which is around 400,000 pounds of cocaine and machine guns into the United States. He was so blatant about it that he was arrested and he's now in prison. Now, according to the U.S. court in New York, where he was tried, El Chapo Guzman, the most infamous drug dealer in history, the Mexican drug dealer, El Chapo Guzman, he personally gave $1 million to the brother of Honduras's former U.S.-backed president, Juan Orlando Hernandez. Again, this is the U.S.-backed puppet dictator who stole two elections and was in power for nearly a decade and was supported by Obama and then supported by Trump. And then now he just left office. But Juan Orlando Hernandez, his brother, Tony Hernandez, Antonio Hernandez or Tony Hernandez, who's in prison, he took a million dollar bribe from El Chapo Guzman and then used that money to fund his brother's presidential campaign to steal the election. The U.S. court admitted this. We're talking about such insane levels of corruption that even U.S. courts could not ignore it. So it's no surprise that this region in Central America has been so destabilized. And it's also not a coincidence that after the 2009 U.S.-backed coup against a democratically elected left-wing leader, Mawasalaya, in the, in the years following that coup, Honduras had one of the highest murder rates in the world, and it was tied with El Salvador. So these are the two countries, Honduras and El Salvador, have the highest murder rates in the world, the highest rates of violence in the world outside of countries that are at war. Basically, you have low-intensity wars going on, civil wars, basically. I'm in Nicaragua. I have residency in Nicaragua, and it's a safe country. I don't feel in danger here. I am terrified by El Salvador. And El Salvador still today in the capital, San Salvador, there are entire neighborhoods where people know not to go into them because they're controlled by gangs. That doesn't exist here in the so-called dictatorship, the socialist government of the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. So the U.S. is by far the most important factor in creating these problems in Central America, which, by the way, is why the left is coming back to power because they want to have independent governments. And it's also why they're turning to China, which is something that's really scaring the U.S. Nicaragua is now part of the Belt and Road Initiative of China. And in Honduras, the new left-wing president, who is also the first woman president of Honduras, which is great because this is also a country that has suffered from a lot of patriarchal violence against women. So as the first woman president, she has made like fighting against femicide and fighting against violence against women an important part of her program. But she's also talking about working with China. She said during her presidential campaign that if she wins, that they're going to break ties with Taiwan. They're, they're... Another thing about Central America is that Central America and the Caribbean 
are basically the only countries in the world that still recognize Taiwan because they're basically colonized by the U.S. And the U.S. forces them, tells them, it says, you have to keep recognizing Taiwan. You can't recognize China. So Samara Castro, yes, there's a new president in the world whose last name is Castro of no relation to Fidel Castro, but her name is Samara Castro. And she said during her campaign that she was going to recognize China if she won. And she'll probably do that in the, in the next year or two. This region has been so devastated and also Latin America as a whole. You know, you mentioned Argentina. Argentina is trapped under odious debt. What is odious debt? That means that you're trapped under this debt from previous governments that was not used to actually invest in infrastructure. It was, it was corruption. And, and Argentina had this right-wing multimillionaire corrupt leader named Mauricio Macri, who was, of course, a great friend of Donald Trump when he was in power. And what happened is that he took the largest IMF loan in history. What is the IMF? The International Monetary Fund, the IMF. This is basically controlled by the U.S. It claims to be an economic institution. It's actually a political institution. And the U.S. is the only country in the world that has veto power over the IMF. It was created by the U.S. at the Bretton Woods Conference at the end of World War II. And it uses it as a tool, a political and economic tool to trap countries in debt. And then the U.S. government uses that debt and says, in order to have your debt renegotiated, you have to privatize your state-owned companies. You have to privatize your natural resources and sell them to U.S. corporations. You have to cut the minimum wage. You have to cut labor protections. It's called structural adjustment. So Argentina had this multimillionaire right-wing corrupt neoliberal, and he took the largest IMF loan in history at $55 billion, which is massive for the Argentine economy. And surprise, he didn't actually use it to try to take his country out of economic crisis. Instead, he used it to enrich all his friends, his capitalist buddies. And what he left behind was $44 billion in debt. And then what happened is in, in 2018, there was a democratically elected center-left. He's not even a socialist. He's a center-left progressive president named Alberto Fernandez. And he was left with all this odious debt that he can't pay off. It's $44 billion. And he keeps trying to renegotiate it with the IMF. And the IMF keeps demanding all of these terms that are simply not negotiable, that he refuses to negotiate, like cutting the minimum wage, cutting health care, cutting education, all these things. So instead, what he's decided is, fine, I'm going to go over to China and Russia. He met this, this, Feb this February, Argentine President Fernandez met with Chinese President Xi Jinping, and he met with a Russian President Vladimir Putin. And he said, Argentina wants to end its dependency on the U.S. and the IMF, and we want to look for other opportunities. Argentina joined China's Belt and Road Initiative, and China announced that it's going to invest $23.7 billion in Argentina's economy. So the international political situation is changing everywhere, but especially in Latin America. And of course, it's only left-wing governments. Right-wing governments never do this because they all love the U.S., especially Trump. All of the right-wing leaders in Latin America, they love Trump. They worship Trump. So Bolsonaro in Brazil, who is probably the most fascist leader on earth right now, up there with Narendra Modi of India, like full-on fascist, like supporting the Pinochet dictatorship, saying that he wants to bring back the military dictatorship in Brazil, like blatantly racist comments. He loves Trump and his son works closely with the Trump family. 
He works closely with Steve Bannon and Bolsonaro is like the best friend of the U.S. It's embarrassing. He has sold out his country to the U.S. He has abandoned Brazilian sovereignty. And unsurprisingly, it's the left-wing governments in the region that want to have better relations with China and Russia and Iran and Vietnam and other countries. And they want to get out under the boot of the U.S. So I'm so glad that you asked me about this as well in the interview, because it's very important to connect U.S. immigration policy and the horrible violence that immigrants and refugees suffer. It's important to link that to U.S. foreign policy and U.S. imperialism, the I word imperialism, because we have to understand why there are so many refugees and immigrants. People don't just decide, I'm going to leave all my friends and family. I'm going to leave this country that I grew up in, the only country I've ever been in. And I'm going to go to this country where I don't speak the language. And I'm going to risk going through human trafficking with like these very dangerous networks. I'm going to sell everything I own and spend my life savings and give it to a human trafficker, a coyote, to try to enter this country where I'm going to be hated and treated badly. No one wants to do that because they think it's fun. And the reality is that there is a political incentive for both Democrats and Republicans to downplay the brutality of the U.S. immigration system. Now, Republicans, they like to pretend that Biden just has an open border. If you watch Fox News, you know, my parents, unfortunately, I love them, but their brains have been rotted by Fox News. And they think that like Biden has just left the border open and that it's just a free for all and anyone can cross because that's what Fox News is saying every day. So the Republicans have an incentive in downplaying how brutally awful the Democratic administration's immigration policy is, and the fact that Obama deported more people than Trump ever did, by the way. And then the Democrats have an incentive in downplaying how bad the Biden and the Obama administration's immigration policy was. They never talk about the deportations. And instead, they only talk about it when there's a Republican president. So unfortunately, it's incentivized in the U.S. to downplay the horrific brutality of the immigration system, it's an issue that only alternative media is going to cover because Republicans and Democrats, the majority of the establishment of the ruling class in the United States, it's in their interest to ignore this issue. Thank you so much, Ben, for joining us. Let folks know where they can follow you and connect with your work. If people want to find my work, they can go to this new platform I launched. It's a totally independent media outlet called Multipolarista. It has that name because I focus a lot on both English and Spanish. Thank you so much again. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff, with co-host Eleanor Goldfield. We'll continue our series of interviews Eleanor Goldfield did recently with our guests after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to Project Censored Radio. We are very excited to be joined by Eugene Perrier, who is a longtime journalist and community organizer currently based in New York City. As a high school student in Charlottesville, Virginia, Eugene organized a walkout when the war in Iraq began in 2003 and helped to organize a number of the large-scale demonstrations that took place against the continuing U.S. war and occupation of Iraq and Afghanistan. He was a key leader in the struggle to free the Genesis Six in 2007, was a founder of the anti-gentrification group Justice First, as well as the Jobs Not Jails Coalition, 
DC Ferguson Movement and Stop Police Terror Project DC. Prayer is the author of the book Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America, and worked for four years as the lead host of By Any Means Necessary, a public affairs radio program in Washington, D.C. Currently, he's the lead host of the news on Breakthrough, a social justice media project based in New York. Thanks so much for joining us. Eleanor, thank you so much for having me. It's good to be able to have this conversation with a fellow radical Southerner. <laughs> so first, I want to talk a little bit about Black History Month because, you know, it's heralded by some as a vital time to learn about and reflect upon the history of, of Black folks in this nation. And others will lambast it as a shallow attempt to claim equity in the face of ever-present systemic racism. What's your take on it? My take on Black History Month is that it is a critically important month to remind ourselves of the continuing and ongoing struggle of Black people for equality in this country. I mean, just the fact that it exists, I think, gives us an opportunity. But I also think that it's very important not to stand pat, which is sort of where I think we've ended up with Black History Month. I mean, you know, more and more there are people promoting sort of we should talk about Black history all year round and so on and so forth, but it still hasn't been institutionalized. And I think whatever critiques I will raise of the 1619 Project, of which I had raised many, I would see, I would say even that conversation around that that we saw in the mainstream media gives you a sense of how much resistance there still is to really having a full on integration of black history as, you know, its rightful place. It's history and sort of the history of certainly the Americas, but also the world more broadly. And you know, I think it's always important to remember that this is a, a sort of a time of struggle. It's born of struggle. I mean, the original Negro History Week, as it was called, that was established by Carter G. Woodson in the mid-20s, where he said a couple important things, but he said that the whole point was not to have, as he said at the term, quote-unquote Negro history, what we would call Black history or African-American history today, but a week to discuss the role of the Negro in history, and that, in fact, it should be used as a time to help integrate those who have been left out, those who have been excluded into the concept of history that could lead us into a multinational, equitable, non-racialized world. So, so from the very beginning, the goal was to bring forward the history of Black people in America and around the world as an instrument of struggle, to mainstream it into our broader understanding of the histories of this country and the histories of the world. And hopefully that cultural process and educational process in and of itself would facilitate the broader struggle for the liberation of Black people, which is notable because it was expanded to Black History Month in 1970, Kent State University by Black students and professors there. So my view on Black History Month is I think we have to use it as a launching pad, that obviously there's a lot of crazy co-option that goes on and ridiculous things and people trying to pretend X, Y, Z, but the original purpose of it, I think, is still extraordinarily relevant to use the history of Black people in this country and around the world as a, a leverage point to talk more about not only what that history is, but what it means to integrate it more fully into our understanding of the world, which I think is a vital part of the struggle to be recognized as human beings, which is a struggle that unfortunately African-descended people's continue to wage all around the world. And I think one of the things that is so powerful right now is that we see people like yourself creating content and media that really highlights those issues that you've just pointed out. And at the same time, we see more school boards and more school systems saying, we can't teach things that make white students uncomfortable, whether that be Martin Luther King's March on Washington or just racism in general. And so I'm curious how you see this in terms of how could we better utilize this month or this time as we see the continuation of these school boards trying to shut down and whitewash history and how can we better utilize the real history of black folks in this country? 
Well, you know, I think that's a great question because from my point of view, what we really can and should be doing is deepening our understanding of racism, of white supremacy, of what some have called national oppression. Like, why is this happening? I mean, I think that we have seen, even in the context now where like every major brand and, you know, even like the Department of Defense and all these sorts of entities that obviously don't really represent Black liberation feel the need to at least present themselves as, as doing so. And sort of this official anti-racist politics is very much in the mainstream, but yet and still, we still have such an unbelievable amount of discriminatory realities in this country. I mean, just the fact that Black people continue to be disproportionately on the worst end of almost every relevant social economic uh, indicator that exists in the country, even in the midst of having had a Black president, even in the midst of like racists don't want to even be called racist, you know, like people just being obviously racist are like, oh, I'm not a racist. So somehow we've got this wild disconnect between the broader discourse and the reality that exists. And I think that's a really interesting and a fantastic opportunity to talk about exactly what this critical race theory panic is really about, which is recognizing the foundational role of genocide, of slavery, of Jim Crow, and the foundation of the wealth of the country, and why the United States became ultimately what it became, and why it was able to generate the level of wealth to generate what you know is known as the sort of quote-unquote American standard of living, which of course is also wrapped up in colonialism and imperialism. And so when we think about how this foundational role for these forms of discrimination exist, which is why it's so hard to get rid of, even people who want to get rid of it. Because if you say, hey, I want to get rid of racism in society, then when you really start talking about what you need to do, you start talking about big changes to the country. You look at just the, any issue of equity where, okay, well, African-Americans are disproportionately unemployed. Well, that's certainly true. But we already know we can't get everyone employed, period, no matter who they are. So when you think about not only lowering the unemployment rate, but equalizing it, you're actually talking about creating tens of millions of jobs in very short amounts of time. How do you create tens of millions of jobs? So you can see sort of the daisy chain of that understanding of what it really means to address discrimination means you have to make big changes to the capitalist system. And I think that is why there is such an aggressive pushback, because a real recognition of the central role of discrimination only leads you in that direction. And I think conservatizing forces are you using this sort of cultural movement as what is really a, a smokescreen for an economic movement. And that ultimately what they're trying to quote unquote conserve is an understanding of an America that A, never really existed, but that B, is linked to a certain form of prosperity that left out a significant number of people in the country, which is why it's pitched more or less at those people. Like, weren't things great in America in the 50s when your grandparents were doing X, Y, Z? Well, what was going on then? Well, Black people had no rights. Gay people, the LGBT community had no rights. Women were mainly in the home and not in the workforce. And so they used this sort of conservative, traditional image of America, the heroic city on a hill America, in order to be able to say, yes, this country was, was, has always been great. It's these great values that underpin it. And when these values and the American apple pie, cherry pie thing was at its height, that's when we were the best. And we don't want to take that down. And so I think, you know, really, when we look at the opportunity we have here to look at those roots and to pay attention to this exact issue of the foundational role of racial discrimination in the building of wealth in this country, it gives us an opportunity, I think, to push back on this in a real way. Because the final thing I'll say about that is I'm all for studying what the founding fathers were saying. 
because they were very honest that they were building a country that was based in racism, that was based in the hatred and the genocide of Native Americans, that was designed to keep poor people out of political power. I mean, all of these things they're openly talking about in writing. So I say, let's open the vault. Let's talk about all of it, because it really just reinforces the realities of what anti-racists have been saying for so many years about the true nature of this country and the true role of racism in the development of capitalism. That's such a great point. The founding of this country, only 6% of the population was allowed to vote, and that was white land-owning and property-owning, i.e. slave-owning men. That's not what we're taught a democracy is supposed to be, right, or a republic or whatever. It really would be wonderful if we learned what they actually said and what this country was actually founded on. But I feel like one of the things that this system is really good at and that people kind of misunderstand often is the malleability. Yes, the foundation is strict, but the malleability, you know, oh, we can put Black Lives Matter flags on anything and say that we're progressive and say that we care. And meanwhile, the lived experiences and the actual systemic policy won't change at all. And, you know, one of the things here that you report a lot on is the prison industrial complex and the way that we hide it. We hide it under lock and key or we hide it in foreign nations like the ongoing colonization of Africa. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how the the prison industrial complex and the continuing colonization of Africa really ties together into this this foundation of racism that is the United States. I think mass incarceration and U.S. neocolonial policy in Africa really just stresses the point I've been trying to bring out all along, which is that the roots of these things are in the realities and the necessities of the system. Like they're not put there by accident and they're not aberrations. I mean, when you look at mass incarceration, for instance, as recently as the 1960s, there was about 100,000 people in prison. Now we have 2 million who are actually in facilities, 7 million when we include everyone who's on probation and parole, which is another form of being incarcerated in different ways. And it's become this huge, massive piece, but it really comes into the reality of America in the context of a moment where Black communities in this country were being completely deprived of all opportunities economically, even though you know both the ones that were there in the context of deindustrialization and the ones that they were promised, also in the context of deindustrialization. And there's also this move towards the cultural poverty rhetoric, blaming poor people for their own problems to be able to assault and attack the quote unquote welfare state, the idea that there should be any form of social provision to help people. And so you go from a society which had many, many problems, but where the overall sort of ruling class belief was, yeah, capitalism has some problems. We got it under control. We can tweak the system. We can bring in the people who have problems cool out the troublemakers and keep moving and keep doing it big the way we've been doing it like U.S. imperialism for a long time. Then you have a shift to, you know what, why are we doing anything for these people? Their problems are basically caused by them. And rather than spending our money dealing with this, we should cut taxes, give the money back to rich people, let people live in these, you know, suburbs and white flight and all of that and, 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 you know, keep these other people out and whatever happens to them happens to them. So in that context, you have a situation where the ruling class is then confronted with, well, we're not going to do anything to help these people. And as we're leaving them in these areas, these so-called ghettos to just completely deteriorate, there are a huge amount of social consequences. So we aren't going to solve them. So we have to contain them. And mass incarceration is created. And I think you can say something similar about what we see with the United States and Africa today, where their primary mode of operation, the United States, that is, is to do two things. One is military cooperation, quite frankly, which is designed to 
ultimately control these countries by integrating so deeply with the military and giving them so many guns to repress their own people and so on and so forth that these governments are willing to do the bidding of the United States, which leads to the second thing, which is to maintain these as resource colonies, that whatever African country you are, that the primary thing you do is export some unfinished commodity to the US, to Europe, and to some degree to Asia, but certainly the US and Europe in a big way, that they then turn into something that they can profit on in a much larger way. And maintaining that deep form of inequality in Africa is 100% predicated on having people who will carry it out for you. And those become the people who are deeply involved in this Department of Defense cooperation mechanism. So whether we're talking about mass incarceration and the prison industrial complex, or neocolonialism, imperialism, and the military industrial complex, the reason they are victimizing and discriminating Black people, oftentimes disproportionately, is to accomplish specific goals that hold up the broader realities of the capitalist system, to either contain the social consequences of moving Black people out of the employment sphere in a, in a very significant way to increase structural unemployment in the pursuit of higher profits, or on the same thing in the pursuit of higher profits to control the production of primary resource commodities in order to fuel the industries that exist in the first world. And so again and again and again, we see, and I think this speaks to your overall point too, about how people are so willing to brand everything as Black Lives Matter and this, that, and the third, but ultimately it's only at the most superficial level because people still want to say racism is just an aberration, it's individual attitudes. They don't want to think about how there are these broader structures that are continually being reinforced that even if you think of yourself as being anti-racist, if you feel like I want American businesses succeed, you have to exploit Africa. Even if you feel like, hey, I would love to see something happen to reduce mass incarceration and for Black people not to be subject to all this terrible police stuff, then you have to say, well, we have to rebuild Black communities, which is tens of billions of dollars of investment and serious disruption to the needs and the wants and desires of what corporations want to do, which is just to make profit. So even people who are like, yeah, I'd like to see some change, unless you're willing to touch that real heart, that real core, that real root, what it really means to be a take a radical look at a problem, then ultimately you're just going to keep reinforcing the exact same things even if you're Black, like Barack Obama. It reminds me of something Margaret Kimberly said to me when I interviewed her. And she was like, I didn't want a Black president because I knew exactly what you had to do to become a Black president. And that's turn your back on the Black people. And it also reminds me of Elon Musk tweeting out, we can coup whoever we want to. That mindset that Whatever resources we need, whether it be lithium in Bolivia or rare earth minerals in Africa, that's just ours. It's all of our backyard. And of course, you can't talk about that without talking about racism. I'd like to remind you, you're tuned in to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. And I also wanted to touch upon with regards to Africa, you recently reported about the meeting of the African Union, which I feel like a lot of people in the US are like, oh, is that something new? Or is that like a new thing? Because just like the racism of never reporting, you never see any information about the African Union. Talk a little bit about this meeting and if you see any kind of pushback against the United States, particularly in regards to going a different route with making connections to Russia or China and really challenging U.S. hegemony in that region. 
it really is amazing that the largest meeting of African heads of state is like a non-event in the Western media. I mean, some will say that 60% of the, the wealth of the world is produced and coming out of Africa. You know, we can quibble about the numbers, but obviously both in terms of material wealth and human resources, it's one of the most central continents that there is, quite frankly. And going into the 21st century is becoming even more significant because so many of the minerals that are crucial for us to be able to build a sustainable green economy around the world that allows people to live and thrive and not destroy the planet around us, uh, that's coming from Africa. So the voices and the, the ideas of what's coming from Africa are so critically important. But I do think that this AU meeting did show a couple interesting things. The most notable one, and it speaks exactly to your point about the role of the US and Europe and Africa, is the AU voted to oppose the idea of unilateral sanctions. So unilateral sanctions are basically the sanctions the U.S. puts on. Technically, under the U.N. Charter, the only legal sanctions are the ones that are voted on by the United Nations and approved by all the countries. So that's pretty rare, right? Because ultimately, there are many differences in the world. But the United States just has all these unilateral sanctions regimes. They do whatever they want. They destroy whatever countries they want. And in Africa, this is certainly the case. Eritrea is under U.S. sanctions. Zimbabwe is under U.S. sanctions. South Sudan is under U.S. sanctions. Mali is under EU sanctions right now, and we could go on and on, and countries float in and out of these various sanctions regimes in various different ways. So for the AU to speak out against this is a big, big statement. I mean, this is one of the largest blocks of countries on earth, basically saying straight up, the United States and Europe deciding they want to isolate and destroy countries like Venezuela, like Cuba, on our continent, like Iran, that that's wrong, that that should not be done, and that they should move towards reaffirming the United Nations Charter. And I think that is even more stunning because just a couple months ago, when China and Venezuela in particular started a group of friends of the UN Charter that was trying to get countries to promote this exact same thing, there's only three or four African nations that were a part of that group. Now, all the African nations have endorsed that view. And that's just in a few months, you know, six or seven months that this has happened. So it shows that there is a very significant groundswell, even amongst allies of the United States and Western nations that feel the high handedness of imperialism is just too much at this point and that they want to push against it. And I think that speaks to really what we're going to see in Africa in the next 50 years. The people of Africa, it's the world's youngest continent. I think the average age is somewhere between 17 and 19. People do not want to see a future of 50, 60, 70, 80 years of continuing to live in abject poverty with just a handful of people taking all the wealth. But it's very clear to the masses on the ground in Africa, and I've been all over Africa, people are very clear about this, that the reason the continent is so poor is because of the economic policies of the West and how they have deliberately kept Africa down. So even the most neo-colonial pro-Western leaders are feeling the heat. And you look at a country like Mali, you look at what's happening in Guinea, and We'll have to see fully what's happening there. I don't know if those coups are going to turn out to be good or bad. But the point being is that people felt they could take advantage of the mass anger at neocolonialism to seize power. And they, in fact, have. So I think many leaders are thinking, OK, we can't keep going the way we were going. And they're trying to send a message to the United States and to Europe. You either have to give us more of a piece of the pie or a bigger seat at the table, or we could be wiped away. And we know the West doesn't want to give a bigger piece of the pie or a seat at the table. So the most likely thing is that the young people of Africa are going to continue to struggle and continue to fight in a big way. And it's going to change the landscape of the continent and potentially change the landscape of the world when you start to see African nations emerge as that third pole. You've got China and Russia starting to emerge as an alternative that allows countries to have more leeway. You've got the pink tide countries in Latin America offering a different version of living, a more socialist version. And then when Africa starts to come more into that conversation, both by individual countries and as blocks, I think we're going to see, see much, much more. But I will say that 
overall, there are many different contradictions in the AU meeting. And I think what we're seeing is just that, is that sort of the lines of division are being drawn in Africa right now. Are you for the Africa of the past with an Africa which is dependent and subordinate to the West? Or are you going to embrace this vision of Africa of the future, which so many young people on the ground are starting to push for and fight for in so many different countries of a different, more sustainable world where everyone can be raised up, but where we can live in a way that actually was equitable and also not you know deeply destructive? The veil seems to be being lifted, and I'm sure that COVID helped too, you know, just the the vaccine apartheid in and of itself, the fact that uh, Africa is basically being pushed out while rich countries hoard vaccines to the point where they're just going bad. I'm curious also to hear your thought on this briefly. In the U.S., we see people protesting for Palestinian rights against Israeli apartheid. We've seen people come out for Venezuela against the sanctions and the attempt to overthrow the government there. But you don't see a lot of that happening with African nations. Is that something that you see becoming more and more possible? I think it is more and more possible, and I'm certainly hopeful. I mean, we saw the No More movement emerge primarily from the diasporic populations of the Horn of Africa around a U.S.-backed regime change attempt in Ethiopia that was spilling over into other countries in the region. And that was really the first big manifestation of certainly diasporic action by Africans in the United States, but also by progressive anti-imperialist people since the anti-apartheid movement. Right now, the last absolute monarch in Africa, King Maswadi III of Swaziland, is like really on the verge of getting pushed out of there by this just amazing mass movement led primarily by young people and students, very radical individuals. I mean, there's all sorts of vibrant, exciting things that are going on. I mean, the politics of Kenya have totally shifted away from sort of the the, the violent ethnic politics towards the politics around wealth inequality, social wealth redistribution, development. And that's all being driven by the desire and the movement of people on the ground who want to see change. So I think there's a lot of possibilities there, but we have to be able to connect the dots and build the bridges. But I think... There's a lot of hopefulness there in our own our own past, because the reality is the anti-apartheid movement in America was very, very significant. The movement in solidarity with the struggle in Angola and in Mozambique and in other places like that. And it goes way, way back. I mean, we can go back to the 19th century and look at the history of solidarity. But oftentimes it does because of various things. The things fall off. They move out. So we have to really consciously and, and, and aggressively try to rebuild these links and create these networks that can do it. But I think people on the continent are hungry for it. I was in Eritrea not that long ago, and I had some young people tell me, what is it we need to do to get people in America to move? Because we know if we can get people in America to move on this, that we can really make a change. And so people are there already, but we have to be willing to make the connections um, and to push forward the, the type of organizing across borders and across continents and oceans. Such a powerful point of that, too, is making that connection to U.S. history and understanding that the history of Africa is also the history of the United States. The United States was built because of the slave trade and continues to rely on the colonization of Africa. So it's the history and really the present. So we, the people, you know, the children of empire, so to speak, really have a, a have a responsibility and an opportunity to support the movements in Africa as, as they continue to grow. So final question, this is kind of a a, a bit more lighthearted, but also very important, I think, because I'm a book nerd. Um, So of course, people should definitely check out your book, Shackled and Chained, Mass Incarceration in Capitalist America. But I'm also curious, what are a few books that you would recommend to folks to read? In particular, I'd say to white folks, I personally grew by leaps and bounds reading the likes of Bell Hooks and James Baldwin, UEP Newton. So I'm curious, what are some book recommendations that you could leave us with? 
There's a few books that I think are absolutely crucial. Here's one that's a little more difficult to find in hardback, but you can get it online for free. It's a book called Black Power USA, Black Power USA by Lerone Bennett. It's about reconstruction in the South after the Civil War. You can find it for free at archive.org. It is there for free. You can print it out. You can look at it, all that kind of stuff. And I would say, you know, there's a lot of great books about Reconstruction, including Du Bois' Black Reconstruction, but Black Power USA, it's easy to read. It's very short, beautiful, lyrical prose. And I think it just gives such an amazing look into that history of Reconstruction and a sense of, you know, how it was destroyed. So, you know, both the beauty and the promise and the destruction, but I think it's a very important book and a relevant book. I would definitely suggest that. Another book that I think that people might find very salutary to read here in Black History Month, you hear so much about Dr. King. Dr. King's last book, Where Do We Go From Here, Chaos or Community, which honestly still feels so, so relevant to me now. But, you know, go and just immerse yourself in what Dr. King was saying at the end of his life, because this is where he's presenting his critique of capitalism, where he's presenting his views of the future, where he's, I think, putting some very important things about uprisings that in the context of Ferguson and Baltimore and, and what we saw after George Floyd, I think still have a lot to give us there. So that last book of Dr. King, Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, I think is a great book. And the final book I'll say is a book called Civil Rights Unionism by Robert Korstadt. And it's about Local 22, the Food and Tobacco Workers Union in Winston. Salem, North Carolina, and then expanded into the eastern part of the state. It's an amazing story of how this very heavily woman-led, pretty much all-Black union from just after World War I until the early McCarthyism when it was destroyed. It was one of the most left-wing progressive unions in the country. Paul Robeson was a great friend of the union, but thousands of members electrified the state. It was a major part of the radical and progressive movements of the 30s that most people don't know about, and it's a beautiful story. Dr. Korstad is a great writer, and I think it really opens up so many different things about labor history, about Black history, about the history of the South at a really pivotal time in America between 1900 and the end of World War II. So it's a great book. So I would say Civil Rights Unionism by Robert Korstad, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community, and Lerone Bennett Jr.'s Black Power USA. Thank you so much, Eugene. Please let folks know where they can find more of your reporting. You can find me personally on Twitter at, at Eugene Per Year. You can find us at BreakthroughNews.org and also on all your social media platforms at BT Newsroom and at YouTube.com backslash Breakthrough News. Thank you for having me. We wanna smash, crash, blast, smash, blast the system. We wanna get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. We wanna make it clear. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Mickey Huff, executive producer and host of the program. Our co-host is Eleanor Goldfield, and Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer and man behind the curtain. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find any of our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. Thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in, and thanks for welcoming our new co-host, Eleanor Goldfield.